Greetings once again and welcome to another podcast from the heart of Spurgeon. This week we are looking at Sermon 354, a sermon for the week of prayer. It's the featured sermon in this week's readings from 353 to 359. If you want to follow along as we read, you can find us at Reading Spurgeon on Twitter. That's at Reading Spurgeon. Or you can look on www.mediagratii.org slash podcasts and find the From the Heart of Spurgeon podcast there and be able to sign up for a newsletter where each week we'll send you a brief outline of what we're reading with the featured sermon for the week on a, as a PDF. This week then, our sermon is for the week of prayer, and it's a very simple text, and it's a very simple sermon. It was delivered on the 6th of January, 1861 at Exeter Hall, Strand, and the text is Colossians 4, verse 2, continue in prayer and watch in the same with thanksgiving. And Spurgeon's division is dead straightforward. Continue, watch and give thanks. He reminds his congregation that he always receives from a venerable clergyman, as he calls him, a veteran warrior in the Lord's hosts, a verse of scripture which he accepts as his New Year's text. So imagine that if you're a preacher, uh, you're going to get a, a text in the post uh, you're going to get just uh, maybe a few lines, and that is something that you've undertaken to make your first sermon of every year. Now, uh, I think you have to rely upon the man who's sending you those texts to make them uh, credible and sensible. Uh, this is his for 1861, and Spurgeon tells us that continuance then sits like Moses on top of the hill while watching and thanksgiving like Aaron and Hur hold up its hands. It's one of those Spurgeons, uh, sorry, one of those sermons where Spurgeon gets carried away a little bit and uh, ends up having to pack a lot into his later uh, points because he's uh, been helped by God to preach the first few. So that's the straightforward principle. Continue, watch and give thanks. And I hope this is an encouragement to us, especially if perhaps we've fallen into the trap of thinking that there's some... Uh, mystical gift without which we cannot really pray, or there's some form of words perhaps, or there's a certain disposition that guarantees a hearing from God. This is a much more straightforward and simple exhortation to pray. Spurgeon's not denying the supernatural reality of this uh, engagement with God himself at the throne of grace, but it's a, it's a sermon for ordinary men and women, for those who, who simply speak to God in prayer. Continue, watch, and give thanks. So with regard to the first of these then, uh, continuation, Spurgeon says, when you continue in prayer then, don't be like those who pray once and then have done with it. You need to continue in it. Don't be like the person who is suddenly troubled and so prays, and then forgets, or the, the merely convinced sinner who's terrified by the law and therefore calls once for mercy, whereas the awakened heart, renewed of the Holy Spirit, never ceases to cry until mercy comes. And Spurgeon then says, don't be the transient prayer, the one who passes on. And also, don't be like those who pray and pause and pray and pause, earnest then cool, earnest 
and colder still. And I think perhaps if we're Christians, we'd say too often this is our experience. We can be temporarily stirred up to pray, but then the the appetite passes very rapidly. Sometimes we run and sometimes we dawdle. Now, says Spurgeon, I'm afraid our churches have been for a considerable period just in this state, sometimes hot and sometimes cold. And he says that when God is at work to stir up his church, uh, refers to the American revival, it's a great wave, but then it's dry sand. Or the Irish revival, in the same in the end, it will come to the same amount. Why? Because God has worked to stir up his church and there's been prayer, but then prayer wavers and the church is not then as healthy as it should be. There are intermittent fits of health, starts of energy, paroxysms of agony, but not an always agonizing in earnest, not an always busy in this labor. And so Paul needs to say to us, as he did to the Colossians, continue in prayer, not just for a week, but every week, not just for a season, but at all seasons. I think perhaps Spurgeon isn't saying, as he was to his own congregation, let's have a week of prayer. Let's have a season of intensified approach to the throne of grace. Let's concentrate for a season. What he's saying is, don't let that be a fit after which everything else just drifts away. Let it be at least something that sets the tone for the coming year. Don't let the fire of your praying go out. Not a sort of a fanatical uh, departing from everything else and abandoning of everything else and giving up of everything else, but rather an exercise of faith. Always be in the spirit of prayer, says Spurgeon, if not in the immediate labour of prayer. If there's not always iron in the furnace to melt, let there always be fire to melt the iron. If you're not always shooting the arrow up to heaven, yet always keep your bow well strung, so shall you always be archers, though not always shooting, always men of prayer, though not always in the exercise of praying. Why then do we need to do this? Why, says Spurgeon, should the church continue in prayer? And he gives us several answers. The first is that God will answer her. God will respond. It is not possible that God should refuse to hear prayer. We need to actually believe that this is so, that the ear of the Most High is open to the cries of his people. He has himself bidden us to pray and he will not send us away. The prayers of God's church, says Spurgeon, are God's intentions. What God writes in the book of his decree, which no eye can see, that decree in the process of time he writes in the book of Christian hearts where all can see and read. So if you like, prayers are the echoes of God's decrees. It is, says Spurgeon, I love this, a decree escaped out of the prison of obscurity and come to life and liberty among men. Pray, brother, pray, for when God inspires you, your prayer is as potent as the decrees of God. No limp prayers then, no faithless prayers, but believing prayers. Up, church of God, in all the glory of thy prayer, put on thy vestments and begin to plead through Jesus Christ, thy great high priest. Enter thou within the veil today, for God heareth thee, and he will surely answer thee. Here is faith then in praying. The reason why we continue, the first, God will answer her. A second reason why we continue in prayer, that by such prayers the world will most certainly be blessed. This is 
God's intention. This is God's design. The church's work upon the world uh, is like a, a fire engine at work on the fire of a building, says Spurgeon. The world is wrapped in flames of the fire of sin, and the church of God must quench those flames. And to be together in prayer and to be earnest in prayer, the angels might see in the distance the flames of sin dimming and the fire giving way. When we are languid or careless and cease our exertions, the flame gets the upper hand. My friends, if we want to bless this world, then we must pray to God for favour. A third reason to continue in prayer, because souls shall be saved as the result of your entreaties. And now we're closing in, we're focusing in on particular mercies and blessings. And he says it's like people going out in the lifeboat to bring in the people who are drowning in the waves. Long of Christ's ministers, long of Christ's church, pulled with the gospel lifeboat. Let us pull again. Every prayer is a fresh stroke of the oar, and all of you are oarsmen. Yes, you feeble woman, you confined to your bed, shut up in your chamber, who could do nothing else but pray. You are all oarsmen in this great boat. Isn't it a wonderful notion that whatever else we can or cannot do, whatever we feel ourselves able to do or not to do, if we are praying men and women, even if we are otherwise sick and frail and shut away, yet we are an oarsman in the gospel lifeboat, going out to bring in those who are lost. A fourth reason, continue in prayer, because prayer is a great weapon of attack against the error and wickedness of the world. How else will we pull down the ramparts of sin? How else will we bring down the bastions of wickedness? The church does not know how near her victory is. We do not believe how much God is doing, but let the Holy Spirit for once give us a little more faith, and in confidence that we are nearing the victory, we shall continue in prayer. Don't give up, says Spurgeon, because as the battering ram of prayer is hurled with giant force again and again upon the gate, it will go down. So often we stop when actually if we really knew what was going on, we'd be able to say we had been within sight of victory. So these then are reasons why we ought to keep praying because God answers, because the world will be blessed, because souls shall be saved, and because the error and wickedness of the world will be brought low. Now, alongside of that, we are to watch. And again, we have a number of reasons why we ought to do that. Spurgeon is pushing on quite rapidly, and there's a lot that he wants to cover here. You'll be drowsy if you do not watch, because there'll be enemies who will attack you if you pray because propitious events may help you in the answer to your prayer, because there'll be fresh arguments that come to you in prayer, because there are answers that you should be looking for with regard to your prayers. Here are some real wonderful encouragements then, as well as warnings. You will be drowsy if you do not watch. Joshua fought the Amalekites, he says, and I never read that his hand was weary, though the battle occupied a very long day. Moses was on the mountain in prayer and his hands grew heavy because prayer is such spiritual work and we are so unspiritual that the tendency of prayer upon our nature will be to make us drowsy unless we watch. I think every one of us who's a Christian who has ever sought to pray would say, I recognise that painful description. Prayer tires me out. 
It's one of the reasons perhaps why I don't do it. It's it's exhausting work. It's hard labor. It requires concentration. It requires attention. It requires intention. It's it's something that demands much of us and we become weary in doing it. We can do so many things for so long, but prayer, we get distracted and dulled after a few moments perhaps. There are many, says Spurgeon, who will meet in the room of this lower hall and in our own chapels also to pray, who aren't actually awake, not awake to the world's necessities, to Christ's glory, to the power of the gospel, to their own responsibility, so that they're praying but also sleeping. So continue in prayer and watch in the same. Don't be drowsy. And the only way you can avoid drowsiness is by watchfulness. But another reason, as soon as ever you begin to pray, there'll be enemies who will commence the attack. As sure as the church or any section of it shall be downright in earnest, they will be abused. And perhaps within the very congregation in which they are praying. Never think you are good for anything till the world finds fault with you. Never reckon that you've got a success until many begin to cry you down. There's no power in the wicked one, to, the wicked man, to honour Christ's minister, except they are either trembling before him or else laughing at him. The world has no power to honour Christ's ministers. You are going to be assaulted. You are going to be torn down. The enemy will come. And if he comes not when we are prayerless, he will surely come when we are prayerful. In other words, prayer joins battle. And when battle is joined, the enemy will assault. If your motto is prayer, Satan's watchword will be attack. And so you need to watch because if you begin to pray, you will be assaulted. Again, pray for propitious events. Sorry, watch while you pray for propitious events which may help you in the answer to your prayer. So anticipate blessings and opportunities to come. While you have one eye to heaven to help, have the other eye on earth to look out for opportunities of doing good like a captain of a sailing vessel who, with his ship loaded, sees the wind changing and manages to sail out of the river while his fellows, who have been not watching so eagerly, have uh, been uh, windbound there in the river. He watched and therefore he took the opportunity. They did not and they lost the wind. And so the church should watch while she prays for opportunities to fulfill her own prayers. This again is a function of faith, really. Do we believe that if God, for example, is asked to give us people to preach to or to give us opportunities to witness, that we should actually then go out and expect to see people who we might speak to? It's, it's staggering how we actually don't believe that God will do what we've asked him to do, what he's promised to do. And then watch for fresh arguments in prayer. Ply every promise. Use every argument. Heaven's gate is not to be stormed by one weapon, but by many. Use every reason you've got. Wrestle, strive, bring the promises of God. Watch while you pray. You can't wrestle with your eyes shut, nor can you prevail with God unless your own soul is in a watchful state. And then, further encouragements and exhortations. Watch for answers to your prayers. Expect God to respond. The church has but to ask and she shall receive. She has but to knock and the door of mercy shall be opened. But we don't believe this, says Spurgeon. 
We fritter away God's promises and clip the edge of them, and then we go to God in prayer, and we think that prayer is a very holy exercise, but we do not think that God really hears us. This is not fanaticism. This is not mere enthusiasm. This is simple faith. Don't be so simple, so foolish as to sow the seed and not to look for harvest. Don't plant and not anticipate fruit. Give up your prayers, says Spurgeon, or else expect them to be successful. And now a third point. You need to press on. My time, he says, is almost gone, so let me dwell on it very briefly. The third point is give thanks. Prayer should be mingled with praise, says Spurgeon. Prayer should be mingled with praise. It is of little use to be always fasting. We ought sometimes to give thanks for mercies received. He's referring to the the New England Puritans that somebody suggested that after countless days of humiliation and fasting and prayer, they might perhaps have thought of a day of thanksgiving. Now, Spurgeon's making sure that there's balance here, not prayer as opposed to thanksgiving or thanksgiving as opposed to prayer, but take care that amongst your prayers there are seasons of praise too. Why should we go to God as mournful beings who plead piteously with a hard master who loves not to give? It's right then that we should ask God to bless us. But if we believe that God blesses in answer to prayer, are there never any seasons when we should give thanks to God for his mercies? Should we always pray as if God never gives us what we ask for? No, we should thank him for the past and pray to him for the future. Thank him even for the power to pray, says Spurgeon. Thank him for the privilege of taking the church's wants before him and thank him for the mercy which is to come. Now that's a a lovely note of prayerfulness, isn't it? And lovely demonstration of faith. Do we thank God because he will bless us? Not just because he has blessed us, not even because he is blessing us, but because he will yet bless us. Great God, says Spurgeon then, I thank thee for Sinim, the land of China, which shall come unto thee. I praise thee for India, which shall receive thee. I praise thee for Ethiopia, which shall stretch out her arms unto thee. Now, you think about some of the things that have happened in some of these nations. Spurgeon then was thanking God for the mercies he would yet show. God has already received praise from his servant for the blessings he will receive. Now, this isn't word of faith stuff. This isn't naming and claiming. This is simple faith anticipating that God will do what he has promised to do. Now, are we ready to step in at that kind of point? Do we actually believe that God will be true to his word? Are we going to as it were, work out his gracious decrees in our public and private prayers, that we would make known what God has decreed in in the form of petition and in the form of praise. These are the things that we need to cultivate. Now, Spurgeon, as you know, doesn't like to finish without a word to the unconverted. So he asks as he closes, Oh, that some here present may lay the subject of prayer to heart this week. Get alone, dear friends. Get alone this week. Pray for your children this week. 
groan with God over your ungodly sons and daughters, pray for your neighbours this week, put God to the test, see if he do not open the windows of heaven upon you, be you much in prayer and you shall be much blessed, and, O poor sinner, thou who hast never prayed before, the year of God's redeemed is come. This is the acceptable day of the Lord. If you seek him, he will be found of thee. Seek ye the Lord while he may be found. Call ye upon him while he is near. Cry to him now. Say, O sovereign grace, my heart subdue. Trust Jesus with your soul, and unworthy though you be, your prayer shall be heard, and you shall be able to join with the company of the faithful in praying for others as well as for yourself. God bless you all for Jesus' sake. Amen. Now, I don't know how you think or feel at the end of a sermon like that. For me, it exposes my prayerlessness. It's a very short sermon. I think even by, by Spurgeon's standards, it's, it's pretty brief. It's very simple as a sermon. Continue and watch and give thanks. But it's very pressing as a sermon. It's very uh, difficult to hear when we know how quickly and how easily we give up in prayer. Are we ready to do the kinds of things that Spurgeon is calling us to do? Are our prayers characterised by the kind of expectant faith that characterised Spurgeon in his? He says, get alone this week. What a difference might it make as we come to the end of a year so not so much the beginning of one, at least when this uh, podcast is going out. Pray for your children this week. Groan with God over your ungodly sons and daughters. Will we do this? Pray for your neighbours this week. Put God to the test. See if you do not open the windows of heaven upon you. I think we, we're so inclined to say, oh, but that won't happen, or God won't answer. Or it's not like that today. We have already decided that God won't bless us. We are not watching. We are not praying. We're not praying with watching and we're not watching in praying. And we therefore have no expectation of thanksgiving. We become an ungrateful people. And I chose this sermon in part because it, it speaks to my own need to actually believe what God has said and to obey his gracious command to continue in prayer and watch in the same with thanksgiving. Now, will we do this? Or will we be those who pray in fits and starts? Will we be those who, who pray once and because we don't get what we want, we give up? We need to be praying because God answers prayer. Do I believe that? We need to be praying because the world will most, be, most certainly be blessed. Do I actually want that? We need to pray because souls shall be saved as the result of my entreaties. Do I care about that? We need to pray because prayer is a weapon of attack against the error and wickedness of the world. Am I grieved by that? Perhaps, in fact, the reason then why we don't pray is that we're actually not that bothered about the things that prayer obtains. And that then needs to begin with us maybe confessing our sins in prayer, repenting, of our thoughtlessness and our carelessness and our dullness. Because if we pray, care about the glory of God, if we care about the good of men, if we care about the salvation of souls, if we care about the drift of this world, we need to be praying people. And I imagine too that with me, 
you've learned how needful it is to watch. And perhaps this is why we have stopped praying, because we've allowed drowsiness to come in. We've allowed the pains and the pressures and the the difficulties in prayer to stop us from praying. We have perhaps been assaulted. We have prayed. God has blessed. There's been a, a measure of liveliness in the preaching or a measure of forcefulness in our conversations. There's been a boldness in our engagement with other Christians. And they've pushed back and they've said, I don't want this and I don't like this. I don't want this kind of preaching. I don't want to be in a church like this. And we've said, perhaps almost in despondency, not necessarily, then I won't pray, but we've backed off. It's discouraged us and it's distressed us. Or perhaps we've we've gone into the world to speak the gospel to every creature and there's been real antagonism. We prayed that God would give us an opportunity and we were too scared to take it perhaps. Or when we took it, we were, we were beaten back and someone attacked us or was fierce against us and we lost sight of the fact that actually that was an answer to our prayers. And perhaps if we'd kept praying, then God might have given us that angry or stroppy or grossly sinful man or woman, boy or girl, as a trophy of his grace. Perhaps we've stopped looking for answers to prayer. We don't take the opportunities because we're not looking in faith. We don't argue with God in prayer in a holy and humble sense, saying, oh Lord, you have spoken, now do what you have said. Lord God, make bare your mighty arm. We haven't wrestled with God with regard to the glory that belongs to him that we do not see. Where is the lifting up of Christ? Where is the drawing of sinners to himself? Why don't we plead with God like this? And are we watching for answers to our prayers? Do we actually believe what God has said? We need to put God then to the test as an act of faith, not as an act of doubt. We need to begin praising him for what he's done. We need to look back and consider answered prayer. We need to look around and see what God is yet doing. And then we need to anticipate that God will do what he has said he will do. So let us thank God for the privilege of taking the church's wants before him and let us engage with God that he may bless us. And whether it's us or others, let us plead to God for his rich mercies and his great graces. I hope that this has been an encouragement to you. Uh, As I say, it's a fairly brief and straightforward sermon. Uh, Next week, the featured sermon is number 358, The Earnest of Heaven. Uh, And I hope that as we, we hear these things, that it will help us to pray that even in listening to our own ministers, even in engaging in our own work, it's not just a Spurgeon who blesses. It's not just a Spurgeon who prays. My friends, you and I too can go to the God of heaven and earth and we can pray that the most ordinary sermon from the most ordinary preacher may be blessed to an unusual degree, that ordinary men and women like us, trusting in a God of extraordinary grace, can go forth and speaking the truth as it is in Jesus, we may see sinners being saved, that our own family members might be converted, that our own churches might be stirred, that our own neighbourhoods might be transformed. And as we pray, and as we go, and as we read, and as we sing, and as we praise, may God indeed bless us, each one, to the praise of the glory of his grace. 
Amen. This is From the Heart of Spurgeon with me, Jeremy Walker. I hope that today's podcast has been a blessing to your soul. If you would like to share that blessing with others, please leave us a review on your favourite podcast app, especially if you live outside the United States. It makes a genuine difference. Thanks very much for listening.